Hello, this is Peter Lebeck. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of 11 future episodes in the series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. Rick Blickstead is a visionary leader who seems to dream in practical changes. I was inspired by his knowledge mobilization focus, which is on outcomes rather than activities. He insists that social change will come through action, that sometimes the best solution is the one that is implemented rather than the potentially better one that is forever discussed. He argues for social entrepreneurship and for a culture that permits failure because it encourages risk. The concepts of mass customization, networks of outcome, and measurement of outcomes are all important to supporting decision-making in our increasingly diverse society. Enjoy and be prepared to be stimulated. I'm here in Toronto on Charles Street at the Wellesley Institute. And Rick, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and what is Wellesley? Thanks, Peter. I'm Rick Blickstead. I'm the CEO of the Wellesley Institute, have been for approximately six years. Historically, I've been uh, in both the private and public sector in terms of doing organization revitalization. So that's about going into organizations and creating new visions, new strategies, but also specializing in implementing those strategies because, you know, without implementation, it it doesn't work. And uh, as a part of that, you need to have uh, a knowledge mobilization strategy. You know, how do you get information across various organizations. At the Wellesley, the, the Wellesley was a hospital and has become over time a, um, a research capacity building and public policy institute, what I would call a progressive center-left policy institute in the business of social change. You've actually been identified consistently as a leader in, in doing this. What is, what is it about your leadership and about Wellesley's leadership that has made changes? How how have you brought about social change? Primarily, we decided some time ago that we were going to be a pragmatic organization. And the other, given that I had come out of the the, the private sector and just my own love of uh, of entrepreneurship, is that we were going to be social entrepreneurs and, and involved in social re-engineering. Hello, this if is Peter Levesque. Interested in Welcome to episode 9 of the Knowledge Exchange. Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to episode 9 of the Knowledge Exchange podcast. In the, in this podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving Secondly, learning across Canada series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and all walks of life. We want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project and all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL CCL for their efforts with this project. And, do it. and I think our view of uh, the whole knowledge exchange and mobilization issue was to really drive social change through action. And sometimes that a visionary leader who seems to dream best in practical changes not the best inspired by his only second best because if you can't implement it's a visionary leader who seems to dream in practical changes. I was inspired 
and measurement of outcomes are all important in supporting decision-making in our increasingly diverse society, and measurement of outcomes are all important to supporting decision-making in our increasingly diverse society. Described at CCL, bringing people to be stimulated to influence behavior, and that I can see, I can hear that in what you're just saying. Enjoy and be prepared to be stimulated. You know what does this mean to you, or how do you think about this? But I think. Given what about going into organizations and creating organizations, yeah. give me an example. About going Let's into take our, our initial work in community-based specializing in Our goal at the beginning, right from the beginning was specializing to in implementing uh, ensure that we brought the rigor of academic and the lived experiences has become communities. A, um, to create evidence that policy makers and decision makers could over time look at and it and say, uh, yes, this is well-founded. Because part of the challenge was, was that it was quite anecdotal. And you can, that can only go so far. So as we developed our whole research program, we would bring people together and always ask the question, you've actually been a center-left. Policy and you've talked about this before, and I've heard you use the almost leader. that same expression. In, in doing this. What is what is it just about doing the work, leadership, and doing the research, as a leader, and bringing in, in people together? Is, that's a means what to is an it about end. The end is actually an activity or an outcome of entrepreneurship. And so we were always focused on very strong involved in love, and whether that is entrepreneurship. Right now, we're going to be doing a huge project involved in social reengineering, immigrant health, interested in, and we're connecting with what you. How is this going to change what the government is doing today or what the outcomes are rather than activity? That's the business challenge. And so how do you support that process? I mean, what are the incentives or what is the infrastructure to support the challenge? I think first of all, it really starts with a culture that has to be adapted. Second, often we focus on activities rather than outcomes. So, for example, secondly, our governance structure at the board is called Social so one of the ways that, that knowledge exchange so our board has been described as what they are policy focused. So one of the ways that the knowledge focused. exchange has been described create a culture with the people internally that says number one they have that permission to fail. I can hear that in what you're just saying. If you don't have a permission to fail, bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. Number two, that it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. You know, so I don't know everything that's going on in this organization, and I'd hate to take our initial. I mean, I'd like people to sort of say I'm working, doing a little bit of this. If it gets too big, I need to know all of that. It's great quite anecdotal out there you can trying. That can only go so far. If you're not on it, was quite anecdotal. You can that can only go so far. So as developed our new opportunities, you know, sit down with some of the Here's an idea. Just we would bring people together. Developed our organization looking at the racialization of poverty. And we would bring people together and developing a commission research project. Then that's the culture you have to have. You're always willing to push. The Canadian Council on Learning is about creating an environment that's lifelong learning. Right. Can you link social entrepreneurship and lifelong learning together? You know, one of the tenets that I've always used is, uh, throughout my entire life, is, you know, learning is a journey, not a destination. And that's that's a cliche and it's trite, but it's also true. And if you look at, and I, having been involved in, in university life, one of the challenges that we have in this economy is that, you know, there are no more right answers with the exception of maybe math and some sciences, we're always pushing the envelope. And even in, in sciences, you know, what we thought 20 years ago is not what we think today. So what you have to do is ensure that organizations have an absolute dedication to learning, to making sure that you provide an environment where they're always willing 
to to actually question the status quo. As a result of that, you create organizations that have people in them that are always willing to learn more because they don't know it all. So when we work in projects, we're always saying, well, you know, why is it this way? Why don't you push that paradigm? Why aren't you looking at this out of a different perspective? Why don't you think this can be accomplished? But at the same time, we have to make sure that we also have the data to do it. Fundamentally, what we're trying to get to is is the full value of what we know. I mean, how do you as an organization or how do you as a leader know that you're getting the, the full value from the processes here within the organization? How do you measure the value if it's not a, you know, a normal monetary fiscal marketplace? That's a real challenge and, and, and something that I think we're okay at it now, not great. So let, let me take it in a few steps and sort of peel the onion a bit here. The, the first thing is, for, is to recognize that we need to have facts and figures to support our arguments. And I think part of the problem in the third sector is that we have, we've been killed by stodgy research, by what I would call the right-wing organizations or, or the right-of-center organizations, because we didn't have the right data. Number two, one of the challenges, and it's a paradox because researchers are really good at having the data, but sometimes they're not that good as interpreting what that data means from a societal point of view. The third part then says you've got to be willing to take leaps of faith in terms of your experience. So, for example, here we basically hired senior people who had the opportunity and the background to be able to make leaps of faith because I'm willing to make decisions based on 80% of the information or 85, I don't need to go to 95 or 100. As part of a learning environment, you've got to put in the issue that a, a culture has to also have a willingness to make some quantum leaps of faith based on anecdotal experience. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that because what you're saying is that you're willing to take decisions without complete information. I mean, when do you know you have enough? I think you, you do a couple of things. First of all, you make it time sensitive so that you create, you create drop dead dates. And I think that's really important in terms of, of getting people to make decisions because so much research, if you take people who've been grown up in the research environment or even the policy environment, you know, they're looking at long term systemic 10 years, 20 years. And so their windows just keep, it's not unusual to have a, a document that's always late from a researcher because it's always being put off and new information's coming up and they want to be bang on it. So part of it is you put a timing. You say, you know, there's a provincial election or there's a federal budget and it has to be ready for January 1st. And so you've got to be prepared to make decisions based on that. The second is knowing that I think there, intuitively you can make some decisions when you say, I've got most of what I need here. It walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. And as a result of that, part of that is, is experience, and part of that is saying, look, if someone were to read this paper, would they say that our policy recommendations are based on enough information. And I think that, so you look at it through your client's perspective. I mean, one of the, the hesitancies that I've heard from a number of people is, is this conversation about knowledge exchange being the right information to the right people in the right format at the right time. And the question, the pushback that I always get is, well, how do you know you're right? And so part of what you're saying is that it's a collaborative process. There's a trust 
part here, and there's a relationship, and there's also the context. First of all, no one anymore has the monopoly on knowledge. There's just too much out there. And secondly, no one's not darn, you know, that bright. I think bright people really know what they don't know, and so they build teams around them, and they collaborate with people who have a particular expertise in various areas. Now, you also, though, I believe, have to temper that with, you know, sometimes a, f a piece of knowledge that you didn't think, if you were a gatekeeper, would have said, maybe that shouldn't have gone to that person. But that shred of knowledge is something that allows them to go to a next level. So, you know, we're not afraid to, uh, to sort of like get it right all the time, to make sure that it's always 100% the right people at the right time. And, you know, that's great theory. But I do believe sometimes that using the shotgun and the rifle approach is important. Okay. So what are your biggest challenges? If I were to sort of cascade it, I mean, the first thing is always picking the right topic. Either that eventually is going to be of interest to people. Often, I think sometimes we work on stuff that no one's interested in. And that's fine if you're in academia, if you're interested in just 10 other people in the world knowing about it. But we're, that's not the business we're in. So we have to, it has to have some scale to it. The second part, ensuring that we get the right people on it. I think it's so easy to go back to, quote, unquote, uh, the experts in their field. And as a result of that, we don't let sometimes the young mavericks come up. So one of the things we've tried to work on are who are the up-and-coming mavericks that have got a different viewpoint, they're going to challenge the status quo. Finding those people is a challenge. The third part is to actually put it in a in a translatable form that people understand. Can you give an example? Well, I mean, we did a, we did a, a blueprint on homelessness, for example. So first we started with a lot of looking at a lot of the research that was already out there. Because often what we want to do is reinvent the wheel. Again, another cliche, but so many times, see, researchers have always been paid and funded to do what they think is new research. For us, 95% of what we want to do has already been published. You've got to be able to scour stuff and be able to then say, what's, what's new that I want to bolt onto it? And that's where you spend your money. So then, when we were developing the blueprint, there was a lot of information out there. We had to get important was actually saying, what are the solutions that are actually pragmatic and where would the money come from? Because if you want to talk to a politician, part of what they're saying is, well, there's no more money. You know, wh where do you want to take it from? You have to have an argument that actually looks at economics. And I think, you know, I was just at a, a launch of a poverty group the other day, and quite frankly, they, they I wanted to sort of say, where's the beef? Why are the numbers that a policymaker can actually say, if we did this, we would save X, and therefore I'm willing to invest Y? The last thing, then, is you make sure that you disseminate. And I think part of the big thing about knowledge mobilization is that it's a good example of what I would call mass customization. You have one key messages, or a few key messages, but you have to customize each one of those to the various stakeholders. Because, you know, uh, the NGO leader may think very differently than the policy leader. And, and yet we try to get everybody with one approach. And I think we're getting caught up in... I would like to see a lot more work done and not the theory of knowledge mobilization, but the practical nature of how do you actually get a message out. Right, absolutely. So do you have an example of where you've done that mass customization, or is this something that you're trying to implement? Well, if you take, for example, um, we've done a, a survey uh, 
about a year ago with EDs, and about 300 EDs, and one of the executive toughest... Executive directors. Executive, sorry, okay. executive directors and, uh, and CEOs, and we asked them the, the question of what were their major... Part of the survey was what are their major challenges, and part of their major challenges was getting funding, but the also the other thing was that they're spending far too much time on filling out forms because the model used to be the government gave you some, you know, 80%. You filled out your one sheet for the government, but now you've got 10 funders giving you your 80%. And everyone wants different information in different ways. So we've taken the leaders of NGOs and turned them from leaders to administrators because now they spend most of their time filling out forms and looking for funding. So we created a project which said we can't do business this way anymore. We created a different strategy to talk to funders. So we, we, we have an association of funders, so we had a, a different report for them. We had a different piece for policymakers, so we met with policymakers separately. We had a different, even in policymakers, we had a difference between what I would call independent policymakers and, and the government bureaucracy policymakers. And then we took a different tactic to deal with actually NGO leaders. In this way, we had, in effect, four or five different dissemination strategies. The same message, but different ways of doing it. So how do you know you're successful? Well, that comes to the whole issue of, we talked earlier about measuring activities than, than outcomes. And I think one of the reasons, not I think, I'm convinced, my, my own opinion, that one of the reasons we look at activities more is because it's, it's easier to measure than an outcome. A great example of that right now is uh, the wait time strategy in Ontario. We're really not measuring the outcomes of health. What we're measuring is an activity that said it took a shorter time to go in than not. What we're doing is actually starting to look at, we have already started with having clear objectives with every paper that we put out. So at the beginning we say, what would we term this as being successful? So there's an outcome there that we can measure as opposed to what's the activity. The second thing we then look at are different forms of measurement. So, for example, if we're looking at a policy paper, we will look at things like how many times has it been picked up by the, the, the star? How many times has it been in, a ref in another journal? How many times? Then we actually look at and follow change in terms of either health outcomes in communities, health or outcomes in public policy, for example, if we make an intervention and then we see that the government has made a change in a law or a bylaw, then we can say we've had uh, an effect. The challenge is that in, is that nobody, there's very few ministers who are going to stand up and say, thank you, Wellesley, for changing my mind on this, or thank you, Board of Trade, or thank you, whomever. You've got to be able to see it as a collective. We've worked on numerous things uh, with the city that... Uh, I, it would be arrogant for me to say we did that. I know we had influence, but there were a number of other people that I'm sure had influence too. So you've got to be able so to understand that. So it's almost that there's this process of assisting the lifelong learning activities of people in decision-making process. You know, you've been on that, on that side, Peter, and we think that policymakers or uh, or bureaucrats or even people running uh, organizations are you know, have these massive amounts of information and they can take it all in and, you know, what we say is, look, when the window comes, we need to be there and we need to be succinct because they don't have the time like anybody else. 
it's it's important that as information changes, our we are continually revising our blueprint on on housing because things change, and you have to look at. We have to walk step and step with the people who are making decisions about that on affordable housing by giving them new information. We're putting a lot of money, for example, into what we call the virtual Wellesley, which is internet, however you want to call it, knowledge exchange strategy. I mean, the reason we built it is for knowledge exchange and dissemination, not because we want people to know more about the Wellesley. So I'm going to ask the impossible question. If you're going to look at knowledge exchange and the activities of Wellesley 10 years down the road, where are you going to be? How do you see it? I would hope that people would look back and say, first of all, the Wellesley starts off with having very good information that's very supportive. Secondly, that there are a bunch of smart people who've been able to analyze the information, not just produce it. Because good people that, that you want to follow or you want to, to whom you want to listen have an ability to analyze and tell you what all this thing, what all this means. In terms, therefore, of knowledge mobilization, they will have said, these people have been a catalyst to helping me change the way I look at something or help me look at it in a sharper, with a sharper perspective. And as a result of that, I was able to contribute to social change. I would like them to say, if I looked at it from a brand reputational point of view, the Wellesley is a good source and a good catalyst and a good broker to make that happen. That they're, and that they, in effect, are always evolving. That's where we'll be. We will be, in 10 years from now, I, one of the best, and hopefully the best, uh, progressive center institute that offers pragmatic results on social change in the area of urban health. You know, Rick, it's always a pleasure to meet you, and I always, you know, you always push my thinking on this. And so before I closed any of these interviews, I've always left an open question. Do you have final words, something that you want to say that just hasn't been said in this conversation so far? I think it's important as we move forward that we move away from networks of interest to networks of outcome. That so often we're, we believe that we're collaborating and we're building another network because when there's already a network out there, you know, we're not as focused on actually getting stuff done as we are. How many times have you been, I've been to something where, you know, you could turn around and you, th you think you're in Kansas, still in Kansas, you know, like it's, it's that it hasn't really moved forward. And I think that's because we're not willing to take the risks associated with that sometimes. We're too involved in the process rather than the outcome. And so I'd like to see a lot more time-dated stuff where we say, okay, we've got six months to do this, and, you know, by gosh, and if it isn't done, then, you know, why am I at this, you know, meeting? Let's do it. Okay. All right. Thank Thanks you again. Uh